Hi everyone, welcome to the second episode of the new series on Svarim Chatter, which is Spanish Jewry Through the Ages. This episode is with Professor Benjamin Gampel, and it's basically another general broad overview, discussing some broad themes and questions related to Spanish history. It's going to, some of the topics will be similar to last week's episode with Professor Ray, but some will be different. And of course, it's a different uh, take and spin on things. So um, enjoy the episode. Once again, I would like to thank the corporate sponsor of the series, Gluck Plumbing. So for all your service needs, big or small in New Jersey, with a full service division from boiler changeouts, main sewer line snakeouts, camera ink main lines to a simple faucet leak, Gluck Plumbing Service Division has you covered. Give them a call, 732-523-1836, extension 1. Again, 732-523-1836, extension 1. Their information will be in the show's notes as well. And, uh, I mean, listeners should be familiar with them at this point anyways, uh, being sponsor on the Shops AC series and now on the Spanish Jewry series. Uh, also, as, say, as with the first episode, there will be a number of books referenced in this episode in the show's notes. You can check those out as well. And... Um, basically same thing I said last time. Uh, if anyone has any questions, uh, comments, feedback, or any specific, uh, guests that you would like to suggest, uh, there's, the series has basically been recorded, but if you have any, uh, you know, suggestions, I am, you know, open to hearing them and you can email me nachi at svarmchatter.com. And as always, also wherever you're listening, especially Apple or Spotify, if you're able to rate review, uh, the podcast, it is greatly appreciated. And one more thing, finally, if you'd like to sponsor an episode or just to support the podcast, uh, again, I mentioned this on Sunday's episode, but I'll mention here again, because I've uh, been asked this by listeners, a sponsorship of an episode is $360 and support. There's, I got, someone gave $72, someone gave $25. It's very much appreciated. So there'll be a link through PayPal in the show's notes. And if you would like to sell, just email to ask me. It's not that email for now, but again, email me, nachi at svarmchatter.com. So enjoy the second episode in the Spanish Jury Through the Ages series. Hi, everyone. Welcome to another edition of the Svarim Chatter podcast. On this episode of the podcast, I'm going to be joined by Professor Benjamin Gampel, who is a professor of Jewish history at the Jewish Theological Seminary of America. And he is a specialist in medieval and early modern juries. He most recently published the book Anti-Jewish Riots and the Crown of Aragon and the Royal Response, 1391-1392, which has won numerous awards. He has written a number of other, written and edited other books on Spanish Jewry, including The Last Jews on Iberian Soil, and he also edited uh, Crisis and Creativity in the Sephardic World, 1391 to 1648. So this uh, episode is another uh, episode in the series, is, is an episode in the series on Spanish Jewry on Asfarim Chatter, and uh, we'll be discussing with Professor Gampel about Spanish Jewry and all that relates to them. So thank you, Professor Gampel, for joining me. Nachi, it's wonderful to be here, and it's wonderful to be here with your audience. I must tell you that when I first received your invitation and I was somewhat quizzical and wondered about the nature of this broadcast, I reached out to my friends and uniformly they spoke so highly of you and the informative nature of this program. So it really pleases me to be here with you and to explore a subject that's been dear to me for many, many years. And that's the history of Sephardic Jews, the history of the Jews in the Iberian Peninsula. Maybe your audience and you two share with me a fascination with these Jews. In fact, Sephardic Jews have captured the imagination of Western culture and of American Jewry and have been the subject of much speculation. And I'll explain to you why. And I'm sure many of you folks in your audience already intuit this. We have two conflicting images of Sephardic Jews. One is what we've been taught, what we've heard, we've wondered about, that these Sephardic Jews lived through experience a golden age. They were politically powerful, economically prosperous, religiously vital, 
literarily creative. And we also know that the Jews in Sepharad lived amongst their Christian and Muslim neighbors. That's a wonderful image. What a striking image for American Jews. A kind of prosperity, economic and religious. Wow. Is that something that we could emulate? Or maybe skeptically, is this even true? But then there's another image that we all possess that clashes with that notion with which I began. We all know, and I'm sure you'll allow me this imagination, we all know that in 1492, the Jews were expelled from Castile and Aragon. These most prosperous of Jews were banished. We know how much the Jews suffered. These two images of Sephardic Jews, the image of an expulsion of a banished people whose effect of that banishment has lasted through centuries, and the image of a Jewish community that is vital and integrated. How do we integrate these two notions? How do we keep these two ideas in our head? There's something else that I think we need to talk about before we start. And that is, I'm telling you, I'm telling your audience, and frankly, I'm telling myself. Don't imagine that what we talk about today will allow us to essentialize Sephardic Jews. Oh, Sephardic Jews do this or do that. Trying to characterologically put them into a box. Often framing them in contrast with Ashkenazi Jewry. Jews, Jewish communities, Jewish culture changes over time. We can't essentialize Sephardic Jewry, just as we can't essentialize any other Jewish community. So, Nachi, if I could read your mind, you might say, fine, that's compelling. What a glorious vision. What's your personal connection and relationship to this material? How did a Jewish kid born in the Bronx, frankly, post-war, Sephardic Jews in the Middle Ages? Because it's precisely that moment in time, not just in the Bronx, but for Jews over the world, that those two framing questions and images of Sephardic Jews stayed with us. The notion of integration, the notion of banishment. You can only imagine post-World War II, the hope of finally landing, let's say on American shores, where Jews can live at peace with their neighbors and can flourish. Yet the gnawing, gnawing concern, is this all a mirage? That propelled Jews, American Jews, Western Jews, to try to seek out evidence, to try to understand. What do I bring to this subject? Oh, I could tell you about my education. I could assure you that I'm a fine yeshiva bacher who learned for many years. I could assure you that I have a doctorate from a wonderful educational institution. And Listeners, feel free to be skeptical of my bona fides. But it's precisely the harnessing of that education toward a specific goal. 
professionally, to go into the past. And frankly, as we all know, we study the past, even if we study and try as objectively as we can, because the questions that motivate us come from our present life. So, Nachi, I want to give you an opportunity now to interject. And where do you think we should head at this moment? Okay, so thank you very much for the introduction and the, those really those those very interesting and really fascinating questions and and as you say, really what Spanish Jewry Jewry in the Iberian Peninsula you know encompasses. I, I think we should go kind of to the beginning. I think we should because obviously, I mean, for those that are familiar, there is no one Spanish Jewry, right? There was a variety of kingdoms until 1492, and then we had Muslim Spain and Christian Spain and different cultural contexts, and the many Rabbanim and Gedolim and many Spanish Jewry, they actually lived in different cultural settings. They didn't, they were not the same. It wasn't one big, you know, country. So I think we should start. I don't, and I, we can even go back to there's different periods even before this. So I don't know see, where you want to start. Should we go back to the Roman period, even before the Christianization of it, and then the, then the Muslims, and then the Christians, and the back and the forth? So there's a lot here, and that is part of, I think, what you say, what the story, this kind of two shifting narratives, two pictures of Spanish Jewry, right? No, I think what you're suggesting is fine. I think just briefly for our audience, that we will frame it within the context of when the Jews arrived in Iberia, because what we are talking about speaks to the birth of Sephardic Jews, but it also illuminates the nature of Jewish life. The Iberian Peninsula, folks, now I know this is a podcast, but I'm going to imagine that some of you are going to place in your mind's eye the Mediterranean world and the Iberian Peninsula in the westernmost part of the Mediterranean world. I'm sure, Nachi, as you're watching me, because we're actually speaking over Zoom, that you're watching me actually point to the map and point to the Iberian Peninsula. The Iberian Peninsula was the far western corner of the Mediterranean world. That's going to be very significant for us. It was, at least in the early centuries of the Common Era, part of the Roman Empire. The Roman Empire, as we all know, was an extraordinary political force, political power, really controlled the Western world. And Jews, we know, went wherever the Roman Empire was. So it's not surprising for us to find Jews in the Iberian Peninsula. Though, as a historian, I'm interested in evidence. And the earliest evidence comes as the early evidence is always from cemeteries. Folks who are listening out there who may be living in variety of communities know that the first actual concrete evidence that you have for your Jewish communities are in tombstones. We have tombstones from the third century and later, which talk about Jews. The first one of a young Jewish girl who died a year old. Fascinatingly, the inscription in Latin the simple tagline at the end, Judea, a Jewish girl. Oh, we can't make too much of it, but we know, therefore, there is a tombstone. Someone died. Someone took the effort to bury that there's enough financial wherewithal to erect a tombstone that it probably reflects, reflects an organized Jewish community. The fact that the tombstone, the names are written in Latin characters, tells you about a certain integration into the environment. All that we understand is part and parcel of Jewish life in the Roman Empire. But my audience, surely we all know that the Roman Empire slowly over the course of the fourth century becomes Christianized. And yes, the effects of that Christianization, although slow, 
begins to impact on Jewish life. Mostly begins to impact on Jewish life, frankly, because the Christians are defensive. The Christians are trying to keep and raise their own community and the anxiety of Jewish influence. After all, Christians and Jews are both monotheists. But for our purposes, what it does indicate is that there's going to be a shift in Jewish life. That as the Roman Empire becomes Christianized, as the Emperor Constantine converts to Christianity in the early fourth century, as Theodosius I makes Christianity the official religion of the Roman Empire, the Jews, as elsewhere in the Roman Empire, are going to be affected by restrictive legislation. Nachi, you're right, because the major influence of the Jews at the beginning, yes, is Rome, but it becomes Christianization. The Jews here in the Iberian Peninsula are living under rival monotheistic cultures, and that is which colors and gives the contours to Jewish life. Oh, this doesn't mean to say that Jewish life is not internally flourishing but we live within larger social, political, and economic contexts of which the Jewish community always has to negotiate with, even internally, even psychologically. The next major step, really fasten your seatbelts, is that the Roman Empire fell. I hope that's not news to everyone. I don't mean... Uh, we're taping this on Erev Shabbos. I wouldn't want to really disturb your menuchat hanefesh by speaking of the destruction of the Roman Empire, of the fall of Rome in 476. But for our Jews in Iberia, it makes a difference. Because now the, their rulers are Visigoths, our Gothic tribes among the Germanic tribes that take over the Roman Empire. At first, in the first century, there doesn't seem to be much awareness that the Jews are different than others. But in one of the most intriguing centuries of Jewish history, maybe this forum podcast should have a focus on Visigothic Jewry. I am sure People will listen from far and from wide to listen how the 7th century Visigoths treated the Jews, how they forcibly converted them in 612, how they forced even those who converted to sign oaths of fealty to Christianity, how they were still discriminated against. I wish we had as much evidence as we have interest in that time period. But the next major step, as we're moving along on a verbal timeline, is the conquest of the peninsula by the Muslims in the year 711. Islam was a new religion. Muhammad, its prophet, born in 571 in Arabia, died in 632. Within a few years of his death, in one of the most extraordinary military conquests, evoking images earlier of Alexander the Great, of Greece, leader of Rome. Islam in one century conquers territory. Here I'm referring to my invisible map from southern France all the way east to Pakistan. Wow. As all good Jewish historians, you know, we talk about world events and you say, that's great. The Muslims conquered such a large stretch of territory, but is that good for the Jews? Let's get to the bottom line here. We can never answer the question simply, but what I can tell you is that for the first time in centuries, maybe millennia, all of the Jews 90% of world jury is living under one government. And that has a profound impact on world jury. But again, we're talking about the Jews of the Iberian Peninsula. If you've ever wondered, and some of you might have, how did rabbinic culture become 
the dominant Jewish religious expression of world Jewry. Frankly, history tells us things that make us wonder and shake our heads is precisely because of the domination of Islam. The Talmudic academies, the Dishivot, which produced eventually, as you well know, the Talmud, its various layers, its development. Those Yeshivot become prominent under Islam. Maybe there are other programs where you learned about these Yeshivot, about their heads, the Geonim, about their leaders who were in conversation with the Khalif, about the Rashi Gola. We still praise them, don't we, in the Yakum Khan. When you go to Shul tomorrow, you talk about the Reshe Galvata. That means that the Jews in the Iberian Peninsula are now part of a rabbinic, intellectual, religious, halachic, exegetical network that stretches from southern France to Pakistan. But Nachi, we're going off track here because we are imagining that Sephardic Jewry is unique. And what I'm telling you, it's part of this greater network. But at the same time, don't all of us understand that even being part of the same network, different communities geographically and culturally placed develop their own understanding, their own expressions. Sure, there is a substratum which is the same. Isn't it extraordinary that a Jew could grow up in Cordova and go on a long journey and land up in Baghdad and walk into the synagogue and for the first time, oh yes, maybe their accents are different, but they understand the order of prayer. The question of Amram Gaon. What is the Seder Hatzfilot, which is the first Sidur that we have, late 9th century Barcelona, Nachi? We are now universalizing in the Jewish community rabbinic culture. But back to my question. What makes Farchu unique? Um, for that, we're going to spend a little time in the 10th century. Wow, time does go passed very quickly. In the 10th century, Abdelrahman III, who was an emir, a governor, subservient to the Abbasid Caliphate in Baghdad, declares independence. He has his name as Khalif inserted in the Friday prayers. Isn't that a wonderful way of declaring independence? That when you make an announcement praising the government, Insert your name, as opposed to the name that's written on the text. I don't want to get carried away of visions of grandeur. Abdel Rahman III understands how economically prosperous the Western Mediterranean is, understands his political power, his military power. He doesn't need Baghdad anymore. And He's just not satisfied with political and economic strength. He understands that a vibrant intellectual life goes such a long way to support his importance. What does Abdel Rahman do? He brings scholars, Muslim scholars from all over the Mediterranean Near Eastern world, brings them to Cordoba, his capital. Scholars of the Quran, the Hadith. Poets and philosophers and scientists and astronomers. Islam not only worships scholarship, it worships its books. Its interpretation establishes an extraordinary library in Cordova. And this is important for our story, for our ongoing story on the Jews. The Muslim leaders, later leaders as well, understand they're not living in a, among 
a, with a homogenous population. They're living with Christians and with Jews and with Muslims and ethnically diverse Berbers and Slavs and North Africans and Arabians and Syrians. That's the beginning of the notion, I don't want to overdo it, of a multicultural pluralistic environment. Oh, please, let's not imagine Jews, Christians, and Muslims were dancing in the streets and singing together and drinking a lachayim on their porch. No, but what we do have to understand is that there is an awareness that there are a variety of groups within this kingdom. And for Abdul Rahman to thrive, he's going to has to incorporate all of them. And therefore, he asks Jews to participate in his government. But do you know what? Jewish prosperity, as all of your listeners know, also challenge the Jewish community. If you're walking in the courts of the monarchs now, and you're watching an Islamic civilization that glitters, that you're watching a glorious library and Islamic scholarship, you're worried about your children and the next generation. This is no longer, excuse this vulgar expression, your mama's Islam of Iberia being in the far western corner. It is now a glorious, thriving Islamic community with learning and brilliance. Brilliance in their religious texts and brilliance in science and brilliance in new areas of study such as philosophy. These Jews at the court, these chatzranim, these courtiers, courtiers are a significant element always in Iberian Jewry. These courtiers follow the Muslim example. Before you raise your hands to your head and you scream, Oi! They're following the Muslim example because they need to preserve Judaism in this thriving, sophisticated environment. So if the Muslims bring books from all over, and manuscripts rather, from all over the Muslim world, then Jews are doing the same. The best copies of the Talmud, the best copies of the text, the Masoretic text of the Torah, the best commentators. And it's not just the books they're bringing. But it's also the people. These wealthy Jews are going to offer stipends, scholarships to Jews to come. Poets and philosophers from Baghdad, from Egypt. But the Jews create, the first amongst them, Chastai Mishaput, the great poet and Chatzran. They're creating a Jewish culture. But I, this, Nachi, you have a sophisticated audience. So your sophisticated audience understands that cultures leak into each other. They understand that while the Jews are preserving Judaism, they're preserving Judaism because they're spurred by the successful Muslim example. Sure, if the Muslims study the Quran, they'll study the Torah. Sure, if the Muslims study the Hadith, they'll study rabbinic literature. Of course they will. But if the Muslims prize philosophy as the acme of their curriculum, because the Muslims saw themselves as heirs to Greece and Rome in the philosophical tradition, which they translated into Arabic, well, then the Jews will too. If the Muslims prize poetry, yes, the Jews prize poetry as well. I'm trying to stave off your question. Of course, we're going to be sitting in, in the bet, in the Bateknesiyot, of course, in shuls on Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur, and you're going to see Piyutim, Piyutim that were written even before the Muslim conquest, or frankly, most of them afterwards. But it's the glorification of poetry. It's the exaltation of philosophy. So you begin to preserve your Judaism by paying attention to what the external culture prizes. It's not that the Jews didn't already have or develop. 
I imagine, and now I'm stepping out of line, so you'll tell me if I am. How many of you folks out there have been part of educational discussions in the schools where you send your children? How much time should we spend? Oh, we could be simplistic and say on Jewish subjects as opposed to secular subjects. But even amongst the secular subjects, which ones do you prize? What do you prize among your Jewish subjects? Don't just use the word Torah, but think deeply. What are the challenges of the culture in which we live? And I'm sure there are conflicting opinions amongst you, maybe even in your own family, about what to give weight to. I say that not bechinam, so you can appreciate also the tensions in these Jews. These Jews of Al-Andalus, Nachi, were not happy just to be called the Jews of Al-Andalus, which was the name for the Muslim kingdom in Spain, what we call today Spain and Portugal. Like we American Jews call ourselves American Jews, the Jews of the United States. No, these Jews of the Iberian Peninsula felt that they were exceptional. They were extraordinary. They had a glorious culture. And they went through Tanakh, excuse me, modern terminology, really. They went through the Kisve HaKodesh to look for a name which they could imagine reflects their community. And they lit upon a pasuk in Sefer Ovadia. Yes, folks, there's only one chapter in Sefer Ovadia. If this were a quiz, I would have mentioned that. In the 20th verse in Pasuk Chaf, it talks about the Galut Yerushalayim Asher Bisparah. Right? Remember when we read this, this is half Torah, Parshat Vayishlach, depending on what community you belong to. That the Galut Yerushalayim Asher Bisvarad fit their notion. You remember the map that you had in your mind about the Iberian Peninsula? You remember that map, Sefarad? That's how they saw themselves. At one end of the Mediterranean, and then there's Eretz Yisrael on the other side. Yes, we came, we're the Galut Yerushalayim. We're not the Galut Afula. We're not the Galut Ranana. We're not the Galut Rehovot. We're the Galut Yerushalayim. We're the creme de la creme of the Jewish people. That notion of, of calling yourself Sephardic Jews and it, the concomitant sense of superiority, of the glory of your culture, of your success, will stamp Sephardic jury. But look, you can't essentialize Sephardic culture, and you can't essentialize Islamic culture. It's important, especially in this day and age, people want to make Christians, Muslims, are you good? Are you bad? Come, we're more sophisticated than that. We know there are good times and there are bad times and there are medium times and there are tense times. Because this is not our goal today to focus in the main on the Jews under Islam in Al-Andalus. Just know that this glorious time period only lasted a few generations. It began to decline. I'm sure some of our audience knows that Rambam wasn't known as Rambam then. Little Moshe ben Maimon was born in 1135, or is it 1133, or is it 1138? We don't know in Cordova. The reason why I mentioned that we don't know the date is because he wasn't yet Rambam when he was born. He's just born in the city of Cordova, heirs to a glorious tradition. 
he still signs his name, not Rambam or Hanesher Hagadol or Maimonides, that Renaissance word, son of Maimon, but rather Rabbi Moshe ben Maimon Hasefaradi. What does Sephardic Jewry mean, not? Nothing. Is it geographic? Is it mean the Iberian Peninsula, as I've been saying? Is it Al-Andalus? It is all of that, but it's also Hasifaradi. I'm a child of Sephardic culture that exalts the Ketve HaKodesh, that exalts the Talmud that exalts halacha and also prizes philosophy. That's who I am. Not now, today, folks like to separate. Don't we like to compartmentalize? No. You know what your challenge is to understand Sephardic jury? That it's all together mixed into one. Is Moshe ben Maimon HaSefaradi. All of it together. Though, frankly, Rambam was not a fan of poetry. He does sometimes digress. And embarrassingly, may I say, he didn't like historians either. But that I understand. I can defend. Because Maimonides' sense of history was the history that Muslims wrote hagiographic works about Muslim saints, and he found that to be tedious. But this gives me a chance, Nachi, to talk about something else. And that is, when I, that doesn't mean others, you'll interview other folks, they'll have different perspectives, and that's what's wonderful about your programs. When I talk about Jewish history, Although I have done this, and I'm guilty of it the last few minutes, for me, Jewish history is the history of the Jewish people. If you, as you mentioned, Gedolim before, Gedolim, pick your Havara. To me, illustrious rabbinic figures and their works is such an extraordinary part of Jewish history, but it's a subset of Jewish history. Wherever you are living, folks, and listening, to write a history of the rabbi in your town, of your synagogue, might be welcome. But does that represent the history of the entire town? Can we really reduce Sephardic Jewry during the Muslim period to groups of poets and chatzranim? The reason why we can and we have to is because that's the only literature that survives. But you know what? That's not true of the Christian period. And that's why, Nachi, I have spent my career studying the Christian period. Because what we possess in the Christian period is the nature of record-taking that was part of Western Europe. Also, frankly, true part of the Abbasid Caliphate. We shouldn't think the Muslims were slouches in terms of their bureaucracy. But what we have in the Christian period... Let me just briefly say, Christians begin to attack the Muslims already starting in 1085 when they reconquer Toledo and right in the middle of the peninsula. I'm sure some of your listeners have already visited Toledo and were stunned by its central location in the peninsula. So I want to jump in right here for a second. I'm looking forward. Okay, so good. So that we, we should just mention a little bit of the geography and the kingdoms, because even as you said, when the when the Muslims conquered Spain, there were still some Christians all the way in the north, right? So talk a you little are, You, I, I must say, blessed is the podcast audience whose interviewer is learned. There must be something like that in, in among all rabbinic comments. They just the words immediately don't come to me. But yes, your question is excellent, Nachi. And I'm going to refer you back to my invisible map. For those of you in the listening audience, we're going to be going from right, rather from left, to right, from west to east. Yes, the Muslim Al-Andalus was most of the peninsula except for a northern strip essentially where the mountains were. Christians began to conquer from the Muslims post-1085 in the conquest of Toledo. And then by the 13th century, Nahi, yes, you're right, moving from left to right, from west to east, you have the kingdom of Portugal. 
You have the Kingdom of Castile, which incorporated the Kingdom of Leon, the Confederated Crown of Aragon. Maybe some of your listeners remember that the Crown of Aragon appears in the title of my most recent book, because the Crown of Aragon was a federated kingdom. It contained the Kingdom of Valencia, the Principality of Catalonia, and the Kingdom of Aragon, and so many overseas possessions as well. The Muslims at this time period were limited to a small emirate around the city of Granada. I know I'm jumping ahead, but I just want you to know that the Christians conquered Granada in January of 1492. Do you think it was a coincidence that two couple of months later that the Jews were expelled? I think not. So Nachi's correct to stop me. What I am here also to tell you is that I'm going to pause for a moment, Nachi, because the phone is ringing in the background. So you're going to have to obviously edit that out, that sound, at that. That these Christian kingdoms preserved records. And I want you to know, and all of you must understand, in centuries of warfare, of natural disasters, records being destroyed sometimes purposefully. The number of records that are preserved from the medieval Christian kingdoms are astounding. Not only the royal collections, but collections in the cities, in the churches, in the villages. As I said, if you're interested in Jews writ large, there you have their activities. Economic, political, which are a wonderful complement to what we know also about rabbis and their religious texts, which have been preserved through manuscripts through the centuries. What Christian Iberia furnishes us is the possibility of doing multi-tiered history. It can be done for the Jews of Muslim Iberia, for Al-Andalus, but not easily because of the nature of the sources. The nature of the sources of the Christian world is a game changer historically. Back to our Sephardic Jews. Our Sephardic Jews who are bewildered when the Christians are conquering the Muslims People like Moshe ben Ezra, Avraham ibn Daoud, Yudha Halevi, they're caught in the crossfires. The Muslims are becoming harsher towards the Jews, the Almoravides, and later the Almoraves, who forced Rambam and his family to flee. Where should they go? person like Moshe ben Ezra wanders around the peninsula. person like Avraham ibn Dawood takes up residence in Christian Toledo. Yudha Halevi, you know, famously goes on a personal pilgrimage. As he says so plaintively, Libiba Mizrach, write my thoughts, are constantly dwelling on the east, on the Dvil Necherav. And where am I? The Sof Marav in the west. Remember those two antipodes, Spain and Eretz Israel? That's embedded in Sephardic consciousness. Sephardic Jews overwhelmingly move to Christian lands. They become extremely successful. The Christian kingdoms need the Jews. What the Jews have in Iberia, what they don't have elsewhere is their other cultures. 
When Muslims conquer the peninsula, the Christians are the enemy. When the Christians conquer the peninsula, the Muslims are the enemy. Who is the ultimate third world people? It's Jews. Muslims let Jews become powerful because they need them. Christians allow Jews to become powerful because they've just conquered Islam. They need Jews to live in the cities to continue the urban trade. They need Jews with their knowledge of Arabic to speak to the conquered Muslims. They need Jews with their economic and management skills to collect taxes. The Jews, mainly in Castile and Aragon, less so in Portugal, and I neglected to mention, God should forgive me, my beloved kingdom of Navarra up north, mainly in Castile and Aragon, Jews thrive. It's fair to say in the 13th century, folks, Jews in Sepharad are the most prosperous of Jewish communities in the world. Hands down. I bet the question that I raised at the beginning of the program is beginning to discomfort you again. Yes, we're seeing signs of a golden age, but one second. We're talking about the 13th century. A couple of centuries later, we know they're banished. Let's spend a few minutes on the 13th century, and then we'll bid you goodbye for today. Let's look at the Kingdom of Castile in the center of the peninsula. Ferdinand III conquered so much of the land from the Muslims. His son, Alfonso X, known as Alfonso el Sabio, Alfonso the Wise, has Jews in his employ. As Jews involved in a major cultural challenge, which is Alfonso X sees himself as heir to a renewed Roman Empire, takes the wisdom of Islam. Alfonso decides, and this court, to translate the wisdom of Islam and that which was taken from Greece and Rome. Translate these works from science to astronomy to medicine. Translate it from Arabic into Latin, probably. And then because of the nature of the Iberian Peninsula, with so many peoples into the vernacular, into what we will later know as Spanish, but really... Uh, linguists will tell you it was a form of Galician Portuguese cultured language of the time. Jews are heavily involved in this project. Alfonso X writes a work called Siete Partidas, a legal code where Jews are given their own section. How are the Jews doing? They're doing wonderfully. In the Siete Partidas, Alfonso even says, Praises synagogues as a place where the name of God is praised. Wow, how's that for a Christian monarch? Yet also Alfonso in the second law of the 24th book, I mean the 24th chapter of the seventh book of Siete, Seven Partidas, talks about the blood libel. If you examine the text carefully, it doesn't seem that he really believes that it is true, but he gives voice to it. So what are we understanding, folks? Jews are secure, but now back to your map. Iberia is now part of a Christian world. Whether Jews in Iberia, whether the other inhabitants of Iberia are no longer looking east to North Africa, southeast, and then Egypt, and then ultimately to Baghdad, but they're looking north to your northern European Christian civilization. Let's move to the crown of Aragon. Do you know the crown of Aragon, Nachi? The conquest 
and the subsequent years post-conquest were all ruled over by James I. Jaume won the conqueror. Extraordinary figure. Supported the Jewish communities. Protected them. Not only that, since if you're keeping the map in mind, please, those of you who have forgotten your map, please look at it again. They border the Mediterranean. Trade. It's not like inland Castile. Jews are populating the royal treasury. In fact, Jews control the royal treasury. I don't say this is a latter-day anti-Semite. I'm telling you a fact. The Jews control the Aragonese royal treasury. How are the Jews doing? You would say, well, they're secure. This is the same James I, who is a pious Christian, who is up on the latest in developments in Christian theology, who, in fact, has Jews listening to four sermons and famously asks the greatest of all scholars in Christian Iberia in the late 13th century, Rabbi Moshe ben Nachman, known, of course, as Nachmanides, again, a Renaissance confection, son of Nachman, to engage in a public dispute with Pablo Cristiani, a Jewish convert. Wow. They live side by side. What I am telling and challenging you is don't say, oh, one aspect of their life didn't count or another aspect of their lives. As I said before, live with many conflicting ideas. If you want to understand a community in time, understand that they're prosperous, understand that they're well-established, understand that they are smart, understand that they are as wise politically as you are, and they understand also the built-in challenges of living in a Christian environment. But if I may go on for a few minutes more now, Nachi? Nachi is nodding his head, so I will continue. It's not just we're now part of a Christian environment. Because if you gaze northward across the Pyrenees to France and Germany, it's not only Christian ideas that are coming over the Pyrenees, it's also Jewish ideas. This idea of Ashkenazi and Sephardi Jewry somehow growing up in a vacuum, in a sealed pack, is nonsensical. Transmission of culture moves in many different directions even if we don't recognize them. Let's stay for the sake of time and also because it's a beautiful example with Nachmanides. Ramban is born in 1194 in Girona, Spanish Gerona, but those of you who know Catalan, it's Girona. He's born in a Christian environment. Oh, sure, his teachers, by which I mean his literary teachers, are so much part and parcel of Sepharad born under Islam. But Ramban grows up in a different world. If you look at Ramban and you look at what he wrote... Many of you might be aware of Ramban's commentary on the Torah. Right? Essays. Not the line-by-line -line commentary of Rashi. Yet, those of you who have read his poetical introduction, what does he say? that there are two guides for him. 
He has his Sephardic tradition. And he also has an Ashkenazi tradition, which is available to him. And surprisingly, what does Rambam HaSefaradi say? That the Menorah HaTahorah is the commentary of Rashi. The Ashkenazi Rabbi Yitzchak. And for Rabbi Abraham Ibn Ezra, that paragon of Sparta commentators, whose interest, yes, in grammar, in textual accuracy, who is a rationalist. Rambam says something which is emblematic of the tension within Jewish culture at that time. He says about Abraham Ibn Ezra, he has tochachat megula ahava mesutara. Open rebuke. Ahava mesutara, concealed love. He has love for his Sephardic tradition. But Ramban is out for something else. In this Christian environment, he doesn't feel that philosophy can answer its questions. Because the Christian environment didn't embrace philosophical truth in the same measure as Islam did. He's facing a different challenge. He's facing a challenge of Christians now who in the 13th century are out to convert Jews, specifically as a program. Of course, Christianity was always interested in spreading its wings. But in the 13th century, as we saw by the disputation in which he was engaged, is taking it to the Jews publicly. Ramban was a Makubal. He was a mystic. And he does something which upsets and he knows will upset all his fellow Kabbalists, if I can use that term, because that term is loose. It's not only Rashi that comes across the Pyrenees. Theosophical mysticism, in other words, the knowledge of God, maybe there are programs on Kabbalah. I refer you to them. As exemplified by the Sefer Abba here, come across from Provence. Provence, right? Lip over the Pyrenees, turn right. Come into Catalonia, come into Girona. There's a specific Kabbalah in Girona. There's another branch of Theosophic Kabbalah that travels across northern Spain, as you know, and lands up in Leon, in northern Spain. Gives birth to the compilation of the Zohar. These are two extraordinary schools of Jewish mysticism that appear in the 13th century that take root in Sepharad and explode. And what does Ramban do? Ramban embeds Alderech Ha'emet, mystical observations in his commentary. Mystical observations were usually limited to people within your small conventicle. Or if you had a revelation from Eliyahu Hanavi. Ramban takes pains if you read Ramban's commentary carefully, and I'm sure many of you do. No, don't worry, I'm not telling any secrets, even as he tells secrets. Ramban probably understood it as an etla assault. I need to have a compelling theology that will grab the Jews, that will tell them that there is a mystical tradition, that there is meaning to the tagin, to the words, to gematria, that transcends the words of the Torah, which is being fought over by Christians and Jews. That we have a tradition that dates back, that is profound, that is deep. In the interest of time, really, God should forgive me, we move to Ramban's Talmud commentary. So much of the influence of Sephardic Talmud commentary interests in the structure of the sugya. Ramban raises it into a fine art form by also incorporating Tosafistic, if you will, dialogue with the text. With the idea pioneered 
Well, at that time by Rabbeinu Tam, in his time, he's a bit later of attempting to understand all of Chazal, all of their writings as a unified theological and halachic statement. Whether it's Rabban, whether it's a student Rashba, they represent in their, for Ramban in his Bible, Torah, and in his Talmud commentary, a fusion of Ashkenaz and Sepharad. And I want to jump in and say, so first of all, there will be an episode uh, with, with Professor Oded Israeli, who just wrote a uh, fantastic new intellectual biography of Ramban. But Ramban even emphasizes, I guess not even more, I would say, he first engages with the Sefer Muhammad and Sefer Zuchus with the Rif, who was in Muslim, you know, Spain, while the Ramban himself is from Christian Spain. And and then he I, I, he he engages with the Rif by writing, not only he completes it on other Mandarim and other Masechlis, he also writes a defense in Sefer Zuchus and Sefer Mohammed against who? Against province, Ju- Provence, Jews from Provence, Provence Algeria, which was the Ravid and the Rezach Alevi, the Balamor. And then, like you said, he engages with Rashi and in, in, in engages with the Bali Taisa. So he's engaging with everybody in all his writings. Yes! Yes, Nachi! Wonderfully said. And what about philosophy, the acme of the curriculum? You see how Ramban will distance himself from Rambam time after time. And yet, and this is so important to understand, and yet he will try to mediate the dispute over the value of philosophical literature in the mid-13th century. In 1232, probably earlier, in Provence, there is a debate over Maimonidean writings. Mon Dieu! Maimonidean writings? The great eagle? The author of the Mishneh Torah? The author, author of the Moray? In Provence, where they translated the Ibn Tibon family, translated into Hebrew? where the cultural elite saw themselves as thoroughgoing Maimonideans. But in the 13th century, to give you an idea how things have changed now, there are suspicions that maybe people don't truly understand Maimonides, that they're going to use his Ta'ameha Mitzvot. What a glorious contribution. Uh-oh, Ta'ameha Mitzvot means that there are reasons for commandments. If there are reasons, maybe someone can say those reasons don't apply. Maybe someone could say, as Rambam often does, that there are historical reasons for the commandments. Maybe we're living at a different time. A debate erupts in Provence. Oh, what a wonderful topic. People fight with each other. The pro-Maimonideans, the anti-Maimonideans, perhaps Rambam, Sefer Hamada, and the Moray are burnt. Perhaps the pro-Maimonidean faction asserts the anti-Maimonidean faction brought these books to the Inquisition, the newly founded Papal Inquisition. But for our purposes in Sefarad, the debate now takes place in Iberian soil. The bait erupts in Toledo. Toledo, Nachi, the center, the heart. Would you know that the Jewish community of Toledo pretty much can't decide? My, have we changed. My money's just died in 1204. Sephardic Jews who saw themselves as heirs to Rambam and his vision of Judaism. What does Ramban do, our friend Ramban? Writes letters to the Northern Europeans, to the Tosafists. Hey, the writings of Ramban are not what you think they are. Don't join the ban against the Maimonideans. They don't, he understands, they don't grow up in a philosophical environment. And then he writes to his fellow Sephardic rationalists. Understand that maybe we need to have limitations. You know, many of us know oh, limitations on when you should study the Zohar, limitations on when you should study the Moreh. We see in Ramban's own work in his own lifetime, this mixture of Sephardic and Ashkenazi cultures. 
the clash of the jury that grew up under Islam with the jury that was embedded in Christianity, the swirling ideas. I want you to appreciate that. I want you to appreciate Sephardic Judaism, Sephardic Jews in its entirety, in its wholeness. But still, it gnaws at us. The golden age. The expulsion. How did this come to pass? How did these Jews who, whatever we've said here, were doing quite well at the end of the 13th century and even the beginnings of the 14th? Nachi assures me that if you stay tuned to his podcasts, the appropriate answers will be forthcoming, please, God. Yes, Mr. Hashem, we'll have many more uh, episodes on this topic. And uh, Mr. Hashem, we'll have one with you about the, the riots and what happened in 1391 to the Jews on the way, unfortunately, to the Inquisition in Spain and the expulsion and all the, a lot of uh, unfortunate events in Spanish Jewry. So right now we're still in kind of the golden age, so to speak. Now, and I want to, so first of all, there's your book. So I'll, uh, in the show's notes, I'll, I can link to that, even though that's not what we really discussed here. And you're, you're, I'll put your books there. Uh, also, you have a YouTube series yourself where you go through a lot of Spanish Jewry. If you don't want to mention it, I can link to that too. Um, I just wanted to finish this episode. Like I said, we'll put off a lot more for future episodes with yourself and other guests. But I wanted to ask you, first of all, if you want to mention your series and YouTube that you have and uh, suggested reading, I guess, in general or until this part where we're really up to. Sure. Um, thank you. Uh, I'm happy that you're my promotional agent. And yes, I have a series on Spartac history on YouTube. Um, in terms of classic works that were written quite a while ago, but still are of value, some of your listeners might even own them. Um, the Jews of Muslim Spain, which is translated into three volumes from Hebrew into English by Eliyahu Ashtor, A-S-H-T-O-R, and the wonderfully classic uh, History of the Jews in Christian Spain by Yitzhak Ber, also translated from Hebrew into English. And I must say, uh, wrote an introduction to that book when it was republished in 1992. Forgive my uh, self-promotion. Um, I also wanted to call attention to a new book that's coming out by uh, Professor Jonathan Ray of Georgetown. He's coming out with a book on Sephardic Jewry that will be published soon by University of Pennsylvania Press. And that's really, really good news. Sephardic Jewry, the Jews of the Iberian Peninsula, has so much to offer us today in its history, whether you're interested in social, economic, political, religious history. And there's so much learning, and there are so many really fine insights by great historians. So I really would encourage all of your listeners, whether if audibly, uh, podcasts, vodcasts, um, books, Please, uh, there's much to learn and there's much to think about. Okay, so I will, I'll link to those in the show's notes in your series. And like I said, listeners should stay tuned for more episodes in the series with yourself and other guests. And thank you very much for joining me on this episode. My pleasure, Nachi. And uh, good Shabbos, Shabbat Shalom to you and to all your listeners, whenever it is that they do hear it. Yes, exactly. Take care, be well. Thank you for joining me.